Take your Bibles and go to Genesis 48 as we continue our study through this book and what a year it has been in this passage. So keep your Bibles handy, your Bible app or the Bible there in front of you. We've got a lot to look at this morning, and I'll put quite a bit on the screen, but then I'll draw your attention to several of the passages there in your Bibles as well as we move through this very quickly. Thomas Halliburton was a Scottish preacher in the 18th century, one of my favorite characters. Some of his sermons are still available as they've been handed down and recorded online. And as he was dying, he said something that has stuck out to me. He said, you can believe a man venturing on eternity. He said, I have weighed eternity this last night. I have looked on death as stripped away of all things pleasant to nature. And under the view of all things, I have found that only God has given satisfaction, a rational satisfaction that makes me rejoice. Someone standing near to his bed, a dear friend of him, had come close there in the last moments, and Halliburton said to him, When I fall so low that I cannot speak, I'll show you a sign of triumph if I can in those final moments, as death began to consume Halliburton and he was unable to speak, his friend would record that as his breath began to slow, he took one final breath, and in a moment of astounding energy, he lifted both hands in the air. And his friend recorded it was like a runner who had not only finished his race, but could already see the reward of victory. I love those stories, those testimonies. But in Scripture, <clears throat> although we have a record of thousands of individuals and characters, we don't really have many in the volumes that we have contained in the Bible. We don't have many records of the deaths, the last will and testament, the final words, those last moments that are recorded as far as the last thoughts and words that are recorded from these people. For instance, in Genesis, so far, there's been nothing. Adam was silent. Noah said nothing in his final moments. There were no final admonitions recorded from Father Abraham, even. Isaac, in his last days, was more concerned about his belly and left no final words of wisdom or final wishes. So these scenes that we have from Genesis 47 to 49 really are astonishing. We have three deathbed scenes and three scenes that record the final words and wishes of this patriarch, Jacob. Last week we saw that Jacob brings Joseph in to his deathbed and he says, I'm dying. And of course he lives for some time later. But Jacob asked Joseph to covenant and promise that he will not leave his body in Egypt, but take him back to Canaan to be buried. And then today, in chapters 48 and 49, we have two more deathbed scenes recorded where Joseph will give us, in detail, Moses records not just some of his last words, but some of the most astounding, prophetic, and blessed words in his life. So what do we learn from these very unique and incredible scenes in chapters 48 and 49? Well, if we take our principle of repetition, then there's a lesson here about blessing. At least 12 times the word bless or blessing is used in these chapters, and there are direct and indirect references to specific blessings that are mentioned in these chapters. As Jacob approaches the end of his life, he's going to speak a blessing over his children. And in doing so, he will speak a prophetic message 
over their lives and about what they will be and become as a people. And as we see these pronounced, especially coming into the holiday seasons, as I've wrestled with this text for the last few weeks, I couldn't help but to ask myself a question in light of blessing. What is biblical blessing? Considering the blessings that we see here, what is true biblical blessing? What I'm really asking is, what is real biblical blessing versus the hashtag blessed life? Now, I know we've discussed this here before, and even in the light of something like 2020, we still see it. Someone gets a new house, a new car, some new possession, a job, a promotion, something tangible that they can touch. And, of course, if it's not Facebooked, Instagrammed, or tweeted, it never happened, and they will filter all of this through the tag of hashtag blessed. And sometimes it's not as trivial as the temporary things. It may be a a momentous thing that has happened in their life, some victory that they've experienced, and they will say that they are hashtag blessed. But in our passage this morning, what we find is that true biblical blessing is not defined by our possessions. It's not defined by our circumstances or even our positions. What we find is that real biblical blessing at its core is understood by its source. It's understood by its purpose, by its promise. In our passage this morning, we'll see that there are some threats and some dangers to missing what is really biblical blessing. What we learn from these scenes reveals the gracious and sovereign work of God in the lives of these characters, in the, in the context of these passages, listen, and in the connection for me and you as we live our Hashtag blessed lives. This morning, let's consider some of these things and we'll walk through this as we go. We already see the first one there on the screen. Consider the source that marks blessing. Jacob had spent 70 years in Hebron. In the last 22 years of his life, he had been robbed of a relationship with his beloved son Joseph and his children. But now, because of God's grace, His mercy, His provision, protection, they have been restored, not just Joseph and Jacob, but now their whole family is celebrating in these benefits of God's goodness And they will spend now another 70 years, Jacob will spend, with Joseph and his children in Egypt. Last week, Joseph and Jacob, we saw, make this covenant together that Joseph will not allow him to be buried there. And now, as we come to chapter 48, at some point later, Joseph, being one of the busiest cats in Egypt, at one of the most distraught times in its history, returns there from Goshen to do some work. And he receives word that his father is ill. Incidentally, this is the first mention of illness in all of Scripture. And that's where we pick up in chapter 48. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. What are the marks of blessing? What are real marks of biblical blessing? Well, the marks of blessing have their source 
in God. The power of this scene is often lost in translation. Notice Joseph's response in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, look at that, Behold, your father is ill. Now, he wasn't summoned like before. Before, Joseph called, or Jacob called him and Joseph came. But now he just hears that his father's ill, and immediately he begins preparation, gathering his two sons, and he rushes to be there with his father. Not just uh, Joseph's response, but notice Jacob's resolve in verse 2. I love this. And when Jacob hears his son is coming, your son Joseph has come to you, then Israel summoned his strength and set up in bed. Even in his sickness and his old age, he rises up boldly and confidently in this moment to take charge of his death. I love what Donald Barnhouse says about this moment. He says, what Jacob does here in his deathbed is a magnificent triumph of his life. He says, like a runner who had been outdistanced by others, he now gets his second wind and sweeps by them all, taking the prize. What an example that we see in this text. It's Joseph experiencing a testimony from his father that is going to point back to the source of all blessing in his life. What do we learn from Jacob's testimony of blessing? Well, you see... That in this testimony, this grasper, this deceiver, this heel grabber, and this blessing swindler is now about to pronounce a blessing himself from the God who had given him authority to do so. It's this moment, this scene, that is accredited to Jacob in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The testimony that Joseph is seeing from his father in his dying moments is a testimony that points back to God as the source of all blessing. This testimony is seen in a couple of ways. God as the source is a testimony that shows it begins and ends with God. That's the testimony. Look at verses 3 and verse 21 in Jacob's testimony. Verse 3 says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Verse 21, at the end of his testimony, he says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Listen, blessed is a life and a heart and a mind that can see all things this way. That everything begins and ends with God. That everything in your life starts and finishes with Him that has this perspective. What a change has come in old man Jacob's life. He had not always viewed things this way. The very first time, you remember, he even mentions the name of God is in a lie, stealing his brother's birthright. But here, at the end of his life, as he pronounces blessing, the testimony of his life is this. All blessing begins and ends with God because He is the source of true blessing. It isn't mustered. It isn't made by our own strength. It comes from Him. Second of all, it centers around God's Word. Real blessing centers around God's Word. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jacob says, God Almighty appeared to me and said to me, verse 4, Behold, 
I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Pay attention to his words here. God Almighty, El Shaddai. That's the same name that God revealed back in Genesis 17 to then Abram. When God appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, and made a covenant with a fearful, exalted, exhausted Abram, and changed his name to Abraham, the then childless man, giving him a name, a father of many. And it was that God, El Shaddai, who appeared to Jacob twice, once in a vision, saying, I am the Lord God of your father Abraham. But Jacob is referencing here Genesis 35 where God appeared to him and wrestled with him. That name, El Shaddai, means the all-sufficient God, the outpourer and dispenser of all mercy. He is the all-sufficient and sole source of all things. He also attests to the covenant promises of God that are affirmed here. The word that God spoke to Jacob at Luz, which is the name for Old Bethel, were the same words that God spoke to Abraham and Isaac. It's a reflection of the covenant from the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply. But these are more than words. These are promises made. These are promises being kept even now in the dying days of Jacob. Jacob is testifying and affirming the promises and the covenants of the Word of God are true because they have their source in God. As Jacob is declaring his last will and testament to his children, he's reminding them that the source of all blessing comes from God. Again, I love what Donald Barnhouse says about this scene he says that Jacob wished to have his sons, wished his sons to have as their last memory of him this scene in which he gives God all the glory. Barnhouse says that when our lands are eroded, our inheritance is gone, our stocks depreciated, and our money spent, a legacy of unwavering faith in God is the most we can pass on to our children. That's the testimony. And so in a world of filtered hashtag blessed lives, which is really just a reflection of souls dissatisfied by everything they're finding in this world, we come to a reality that real blessing finds its source in God. And so understanding biblical blessing is critical. Seeing God as the source of all blessing is critical. Do we live lives they give testimony to this truth. Do we seek and see Him alone as that source? You see the source that marks blessing. Second of all, I want you to see the sovereignty that marks blessing. Is everybody still sort of comatose with turkey? Are you with me? It's quiet, but these are really powerful. Maybe it's just because I've had this text on my plate for a while. It's just big with me. Notice the sovereignty that marks blessing. Now, we've seen the sovereignty of God already throughout the book of Genesis and especially in this family's life. And Jacob has come to acknowledge and trust with complete confidence the sovereign work of God in his life. And we can see that reality played out here. Think of this now. For some time, we don't know how long, Jacob's been bedridden, ill. He's been in bed, and for what could be days, weeks, months, even years... The old man's laid there, sick. 
And he's replayed in his mind and rehearsed the events of his life. Every mistake, every failure, every victory, every trial, every circumstance. And every time he has to adjust in that bed, and he feels that catch in his hip, he's moved to worship and to remember the sovereignty of God that he can trace every step of the way. What happens next is further evidence of the deeper realities of God's sovereignty in real blessing. You see it, first of all, in sovereign grace. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jacob calls his son Joseph near and his two sons, and he says to him, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance." Many believe that this scene that we're seeing had already been talked about and agreed on between Jacob and Joseph. The reality is, is we don't know for sure. Now, what we do know for sure is that what is being displayed here points our hearts and minds to a sovereign work of God. And it's a sovereign, gracious work of God. The authority had already been established for Jacob to do such a thing. In the covenant promises of God that were given to him, And now with authority established, adoption is experienced. Jacob now adopts Joseph's children as his own. Don't miss this. It's not that they will be like his sons or types of sons. They are his sons. Joint and equal heirs with the same rights that they will be recipients of the birthright and the covenant promises of God. Literally, verse 5 in the Hebrew translation reads like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. It's not that his grandsons are like sons. They are becoming sons number one and two. They are displacing Reuben and Simeon. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 gives us a clear picture of what's happening. Look at it. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch... His birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet his birthright belonged to Joseph. This is sovereign grace, adopting these children and making them joint heirs where they did not belong. They were sons of Egypt, but now they are made sons of Israel. And it's all, second of all, demonstrating sovereign purpose Now what happens next has become one of my favorite scenes in Scripture. We'll look at some Scripture on the screen in a moment, but I want you to follow me in your text as I paint this picture for you. You've got your Bibles there. Jacob asked Joseph to bring Manasseh and Ephraim near to him so that he can pronounce this blessing on them in verse 9. Now Moses, Moses takes careful attention to mention Jacob's dim and dying eyesight in verse 10. He's going blind. He can't see very well. In verse 10, Jacob kisses and embraces these boys. And then Jacob pauses in verse 11 when a moment of overwhelmed sort of gratitude and worship and says, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. What a glorious truth. In verse 12, Joseph then begins to present the boys and himself to Jacob for this blessing. Now 13 through 20, get this picture in your mind. Joseph, as he presents the boys to Jacob, he makes sure that Manasseh is on his left side 
facing Jacob's right hand. Manasseh, the oldest, the one with preeminence, he's facing Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim is on his right side facing Jacob's left hand. He's doing this because the blessing will come through Jacob's right hand to the oldest. But then Jacob, dim sight and all, reaches out his hands and crosses them and places them on the heads of the boys backwards. He blesses the youngest over the oldest. Now the text says that Joseph is displeased, but that really doesn't communicate what's going on here. While in verse 18, he uses language of respect, still calling him father. The words that are used here in in the verses actually communicate something else. In the Hebrew, when it says he took his father's hand, it's a reflexive action, an aggressive action. The word in Hebrew actually speaks of a strong grip. When he places the right hand of blessing on the younger child, Joseph grabs his father's hand and says, Not this way, my father. Not this way. Joseph is appalled by what's just happened. This is wrong. The older son gets the blessing. He's the one of privilege. That's how these boys were raised. To know this is how it would be. But it was done. You remember back in Genesis 27, just as it was with Jacob and Esau. Once a blessing is under it, it cannot be undone. And how much more, if an unwitting blessing from Isaac cannot be undone, how much more can an intentional sovereign blessing be spoken, not be undone? But see Jacob's response in verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude. Of nations. Jacob calmly, but certainly and firmly and firmly says, I know what I'm doing, but listen, ultimately, God knows what he's doing. Joseph didn't understand it, but Jacob clearly knew who was calling and working in this blessing. Remember, the source of all blessing is God, and now God in his sovereignty as the source is working through divine grace and divine purpose, to work out a blessing not just for these people. Listen, for all people. It was the same sovereign God, the source of all blessing, who had done this same strange act before. It was Abel before Cain, Shem before Japheth, Isaac before Ishmael, Jacob before Esau. It was Joseph before his brothers. It was Ephraim before Manasseh. We'll see that it's uh, Moses before Abe, uh, um, Aaron. It was David before his brothers. And on and on it goes. This is God working sovereignly to accomplish His purposes. Look at verses 15 and 16 as Jacob affirms this even deeper. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice the word redeemer that he uses there, Gael in the Hebrew. Of all the first mentions here in this passage, the first mention of illness, the first mention of the right hand of blessing, 
The first time that a human being is used as a vehicle to speak prophecy, this is my favorite first mention. The first mention of the word redeem or redeemer. It's a Hebrew verb that speaks specifically to a kinsman redeemer. The one with the authority and the right to purchase back someone's possessions. It's a word that is used throughout Scripture to speak of our kinsman redeemer. Christ Jesus the one who would buy back our possessions. And this is who G, uh, Jacob is speaking of. The angel, Malak in the Hebrew, is the same word used to speak of the angel of the Lord that we've seen time and time again. The Theophanies, in this case the Christophanies, the pre-Bethlehem uh, uh, appearance of Christ. This is Jesus who wrestled with Jacob, the moment where he literally went from grasping to leaning the one who had deceived is now testifying to the sovereign work of God to have his purpose done in this life. Jacob calls on his great shepherd, the redeemer of his life, to bless these boys, changing their identity just as his had been changed. All of this to display the sovereign purposes of God. True biblical blessing is marked by God as its source, and it's marked by this sovereign work of God, and it's the same in our life. We've seen the sovereign work of grace for those who are in Christ. We have been accepted and adopted and made joint heirs with Christ by God's work of grace. And it's all for His sovereign purpose to accomplish His will in this world. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You see, the source that marks blessing you see the sovereignty that marks blessing. Quickly, I want you to see the surety that marks blessing. As his final words are spoken to Joseph and his children before he will speak over his other sons, we see the unique gift that is included, the physical gift that is included to Joseph. And it's a little strange. Look at verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. This one mountain slope is pretty confidently referencing the parcel of land he bought in Shechem. In the, word, in the Hebrew, this one mountain slope literally translates one Shechem. The strange part of this is that Jacob did not take it with a sword and a bow. He bought it for a hundred pieces of money. It was his rebellious children who in vengeance took the rest of the inhabitants through genocide and murder. And Jacob never approved of that. We're not sure what to make of this. Perhaps it's an old man who has come to realize that his own choices and actions go much deeper and further than just himself. It's hard to know what to make of that, but it's easy to make of what Je uh, Jacob says in verse 21. Look at it. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. See the marks of surety here. I'm about to die but God will be with you. This is a testimony of a man who has experienced God's presence. 
who has the surety that he'll be with him. Back in Genesis 28, he's on the run from Esau. In 27, after his birthright was stolen, Esau's anger was kindled, and he said, I will kill my brother. And Rebekah scoops Jacob away and sends him off to Laban, because it'll definitely be better there with his father-in-law Laban. And Jacob on the run is exhausted and hiding, and there God comes to him in a vision. And what does he say in Genesis 28, 15? God says, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you, and wherever you go, I will bring you back, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised with you. After many years of tasting his own medicine under Laban's rule, God begins to lead Jacob back, and God leads him back with a promise. What is that promise? In Genesis 31.3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob, as he's moving his family, will testify in just a few verses later in verse 5 that God was with him. He repeats this testimony sometime later after his families had fallen in rebellion and he's leading them back to Bethel to build an altar of repentance and worship. Look at chapter 35 and verse 3. And let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Consider the gravity of these words and His loneliness, even in His rebellion. The sovereign God, the source of all blessing, has never left Him, has never forsaken Him. It was God, the immutable, all-sufficient God, the covenant-keeping God, who had pursued Him and followed Him all of His days. And if anyone in the room could testify to this truth, it was Joseph we've seen week after week from the pit to the palace. God was with him. And here once again we see the testimony and the evidence of that. True biblical blessing is marked by this reality. We are blessed in God because He never leaves us. See the disciples of Jesus worshiping as they leave the temple with their backs split open, rejoicing. See Stephen preaching boldly with his eyes wide open, gazing to heaven as they bash his skull in. See Paul in prison, beating, beaten, shipwrecked, yet full of joy. See the first church cut off from society, marked by persecution, yet obedient. How? Because they have a promise. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority, that's Him as the source, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. True biblical blessing is marked by the surety of God's promise. You say you're hashtag blessed. I asked you, are you moving in obedience and confidence to this reality? How can we say we're blessed if we are not? The source that marks blessing, the sovereignty, the surety, and I want you to notice lastly as we move quickly, the significance that marks blessing. Now let me define this really quick for you. When I say significance, I'm talking about the importance or the consequences of something. You see that very clearly in chapter 49. We'll have to move quickly here. Let's come to chapter 49. Jacob calls the rest of his sons forward to bless them. 
But in reality, there's much more than that going on here. The word bless or blessing is only used in chapter 49 in reference to Joseph. That's it. In a prophetic sense, there is a blessing given here. But there's much more. I want you to see this on the screen. The words of Jacob reveal something else to us, and this is what I want you to look for as we close. Jacob's words of blessing reveal the significance of human character and conduct and the sovereign purposes of God in all of it. The blessing of Jacob and his words reveal the significance of God's character and faithfulness that will sustain these children in the generations that follow. And Jacob's words of blessings reveal the significance of God's greater purpose and blessing, listen, in blessing of all people. Now, notice a couple things. First of all, notice the significance of the prophecy that's spoken. You'll notice first, in the first few verses, there's judgment spoken over Reuben. Jacob says, listen, O sons of Jacob, and I doubt he had to say that because I'm sure they hung on every word. Reuben especially, but I doubt it was out of anticipation or excitement. He knew what was coming. Back in Genesis 35, he tried to usurp his father's authority, taking over the headship of the family, having relations with his father's concubine. Jacob starts with what seems like a very good place for Reuben. He says in verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But then as Gordon Wenham said, as he described this, comes one of the fiercest denunciations in all of Genesis. The cursing in verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. These are very, very important choices that have been made, and now they have significant consequences. R. Kent Hughes points out how Jacob distances Reuben by says, He, not you, he came up to my couch. Jacob says that he will be divided, and the nations of Reuben were the people of Reuben all but vanish in history. You see, Simeon and Levi's disqualifications because of what happened back in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis, uh, I forgot where it was, excuse me, back when they had created the genocide and the murder of the Shechemites in revenge for Dinah. And here in chapter 49, he said, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. He says, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them and scatter them. And both tribes would be divided and scattered. The tribe of Simeon would all but disappear after the conquest of the Holy Land. And the tribe of, of Levi, even though they were graciously given the oversight and responsibility of the priesthood, would never possess a land because of it. And you see the elevation of Judah. And don't get it wrong, Judah had a black belt in sin just like the rest of his brothers, but there was a shift and a change in his life that elevated him. And it's here that we begin to see a prophetic word pointing towards our Savior. Look at it, please. Verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. The word Judah and praise in Hebrew are very close. And his life and his line lived up to that. It was Judah's line that gave us a royal tribe and their kings, many godly leaders. Verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. It's this picture and it's his line from which we'll see Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him. It's this picture of tribute, or Shiloh, 
It's pointing to the one who will come with authority to take the tribe. The prophecies continue with Zebulon and Issachar and Dan. And all of these have a message of hope. But in Joseph, we see this picture of absolute blessing. There's a picture in verse 18 where Jacob pauses to give glory to the Lord. I wait for your salvation. Warren Wiersbe says it's as if he's communing with the Lord while speaking to his sons. And as he moves into the final blessing on Joseph, we see some words here that I want to close with as you consider the source and the sovereignty and the significance of true biblical blessings. He's pointing us back to our great God. Look at verse 24. Jacob reminds us of the mighty one. He says, the God of Jacob is the mighty one, the supplier of all of his needs, his deliverer, his protector, and the strength of his life. He calls him his shepherd. This reminds us of our significant confidence in true biblical blessings. The God of Jacob is a shepherd. He testified to that back in chapter 48, verse 15. He declares that God is the one who has cared for him, fed him, led him, guarded him, and corrected him when it was needed. He calls him the stone of Israel. This reminds us of the rock-hard stability of true biblical blessing. Jacob is calling his children to the rock-solid foundation that he finds in God. Notice the significance of these pictures, and I'm done. Remember what the significance is revealing here? It's revealing the significance of us and our choices, our character, and God's purpose in it all. It's revealing the significance of God's character and His faithfulness that sustains us. And it's revealing God's blessings and the significance of God's greater purpose in blessing all people. I don't think anybody's been surprised by it, but we've seen the consequences of man's sin and God overruling them in these studies. But as we close, I want you to see once again the significance of our mighty God. He's the source of all blessing. We cannot have experience or know any blessing apart from Him. We'll never be satisfied or truly blessed apart from Him. And until we understand that He alone is the source of all blessing, He alone is mighty enough, sufficient enough, and rich enough to be the source of all blessing. Are you looking for blessing somewhere else? Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He is mighty as our source. See the significance of our sovereign shepherd, he alone knows His sheep. He alone can provide and call and protect and knows them by name. He alone leads them by still waters. He alone restores their soul and pursues them with goodness and mercy. And He alone lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus said in John ten eleven, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. See the significance of our steadfast and sure rock. He is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the solid foundation on which we build our lives and the sure confidence that we have to rest in the storm. 
He is the firm and absolution of the every promise and word of God. 2 Samuel 22.32 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The most significant truth that we could see in this passage, or in any passage, is the message of the gospel that is affirmed by all of these blessings. God in Christ has come to offer guilty sinners adoption, inheritance, joint heirship with Christ. In spite of our guilt and shame, He is our kinsman redeemer who has bought us back and given us an inheritance. We were separated from the Father, not presumably dead, but dead in our trespasses and sin. But those who by faith and repentance have believed have been brought in and given a new name, a new position, a new inheritance with Christ. That is how we are blessed. That is how we're able to know and experience true blessings. In a world of dissatisfied hearts, seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places, hiding behind the filters of hashtag blessedness, in a world where being blessed is so misunderstood, we often look to other things to bless us. We can draw from the Word this morning and learn that true biblical blessing is always, always marked by God alone as its source, by God's gracious sovereignty, that moves for His purpose. It's always marked by God's sure promises and the significant truths about our response and how God relates all things in His character for these things. That leads me to my final thought. A life blessed by God, really blessed by God, begins with a heart that is marked by gospel transformation.